0: Chapter Three. Of Space Hounds of IPC by E.E. E. Doc Smith. This Librivox recording is in the public domain. Space Hounds of IPC. Chapter Three: Castaways Upon Ganymede. Upon awakening, the man's first care was to instruct the girl in the operation of the projectors, so that she could keep the heavily armored edge of their small section, which he had promptly christened the forlorn hope, between them and the grinding, clashing mass of wreckage, and thus, if it should become necessary, protect the relatively frail inner portions of their craft from damage. "'Keep an eye on things for a while, Nadia,' he instructed, as soon as she could handle the controls. And don't use any more power than is absolutely necessary. We'll need it all. And besides, they can probably detect anything we can use. There's probably enough leakage from the ruptured accumulator cells to mask quite a little emission, but don't use much. I'm going to see what I can do about making this whole wedge navigable. Why not just launch what's left of this lifeboat? It's spaceworthy, isn't it? Yes, but it's too small." two or three of the big dirigible projectors of the lower band are on the rim of this piece of pie-shaped section we're riding, I think. If so, and if enough batteries of accumulators are left intact to give them anywhere nearly full power, we can get an acceleration that will make a lifeboat look sick. Those main dirigibles, you know, are able to swing the whole mass of the Arcturus, and what they'll do to this one chunk of it—we've got only a few thousand tons of mass in this piece. Will be something pretty. Also, having the metal may save us months of time in mining it. He found the projectors, repaired or cut out the damaged accumulator cells, and reconnected them through the controls of the lifeboat. He moved into the engine room the air tanks, stores, and equipment from all the other fragments, which, by means of a spacesuit, he could reach without too much difficulty. From the battery-rooms of those fragments, open shelves, after being sliced open by the shearing-ray, he helped himself to banks of accumulator cells from the enormous driving batteries of the ill-fated Arcturus, bolting them down and connecting them solidly, until almost every compartment of their craft was one mass of stored-up energy. Days fled like hours, so furiously busy were they in preparing their peculiar vessel, for a cruise of indefinite duration. Stevens cut himself short on sleep and snatched his meals in passing, and Nadia, when not busy at her own tasks of observing, housekeeping, and doing what little piloting was required, was rapidly learning to wield most effectively the spanner and pliers of the mechanic and electrician. "'I'm afraid our time is getting short, Steve,' she announced, after making an observation. It looks as though we're getting wherever it is we're going. Well, I've got only two more jobs to do, but they're the hardest of the lot. It is Jupiter, or can you tell yet? Jupiter, or one of its satellites, I think, from the point where they reverse their power. Here's the observation you told me to take. Looks like Jupiter, he agreed, after he had rapidly checked her figures. We'll pass very close to one of those two satellites." probably Ganymede, which is fine for our scheme. All four of the major satellites have water and atmosphere, but Ganymede, being largest, is best for our purposes. We've got a couple of days yet, just about time to finish up. Let's get going, you know what to do. Steve, I'm afraid of it. It's too dangerous. Isn't there some other way? None that I can see. The close watch they're keeping on every bit of this junk makes it our only chance for a getaway. I'm pretty sure I can do it. But if I should happen to get nipped, just use enough power to let them know you're here, and you won't be any worse off than if I hadn't tried to pull off this stunt." He donned a spacesuit, filled a looped belt with tools, picked up a portable power-drill, and stepped into the tiny airlock. Nadia deftly guided their segment against one of the larger fragments and held it there with a gentle, steady pressure, while Stevens, a light cable paying out behind him, clambered carefully over the wreckage, brought his drill into play, and disappeared inside the huge wedge. In less than an hour he returned without mishap, and reported to the glowing girl. "'Just like shooting fish down a well,' Most of the accumulator cells were tight, and installing the relays wasn't a bad job at all. Believe me, girl, there'll be junk filling all the space between here and Saturn when we touch them off.' "'Wonderful, Steve!' Nadia exclaimed. "'It won't be so bad seeing you go into the others, now that you have this one all rigged up.' Around and around the mass of wreckage they crept and in each of the larger sections, Stevens connected up the enormous fixed or dirigible projectors to whatever accumulator cells were available through sensitive relays, all of which he could close by means of one radio impulse. The long and dangerous task done, he stood at the lookout plate, studying the huge disk which had been the upper portion of the lower half of the Arcturus, and frowning in thought. Noddy reached over his shoulder and switched off the plate. "'Nick's on that second job, big fellow,' she declared. "'They aren't really necessary, and you're altogether too apt to be killed trying to get them. It's too ghastly. I won't stand for your trying it, so that ends it.' "'We ought to have them, really,' he protested. "'With those special tools, cutting-torches, and all the stuff, we'd be sitting pretty. We'll lose weeks of time by not having them.' "'We'll just have to lose it, then,' you can't get em, any more than a baby can get the moon, so stop crying about it." She went over the familiar argument for the twentieth time. "'That stuff up there is all grinding together like cakes of ice in a flow. The particular section you want is in plain sight of whoever is on watch. And those tools and things are altogether too heavy to handle. You're a husky brute, I know.' but even you couldn't begin to handle them, even if you had good going. I couldn't help you very much, even if you'd let me try. And the fact that you so positively refuse to let me come along shows how dangerous you know the attempt is bound to be. You'd probably never even get up there alive, to say nothing of getting back here. No, Steve, that's out like a light.' I sure wish they'd left us weightless for a while sometime, if only for an hour or two, he mourned. "'But they didn't,' she retorted, practically. "'So we're just out of luck to that extent. Our time is about up, too. It's time you worked us back to the tail-end of this procession—or rather, the head-end, since we're traveling down now.' Stevens took the controls, and slowly worked along the outer edge of the mass, down toward its extremity. Nadia put one hand upon his shoulder, and he glanced around. "'Thanks, Steve. We have a perfectly wonderful chance as it is, and we've gone so far with our scheme together that it would be a crying shame not to be able to go through with it. I'd hate like sin to have to surrender to them now, and that's all I could do if anything should become of you. Besides—' Her voice died away into silence—' "'Sure, you're right,' he hastily replied, dodging the implication of that unfinished sentence. "'I could not figure out anything that looked particularly feasible, anyway. That's why I didn't try it. We'll pass it up.' Soon they arrived at their objective and maintained a position well in the van, but not sufficiently far ahead of the rest to call forth a restraining ray from their captors. Already strongly affected by the gravitational pull of the mass of the satellite, Many of the smaller portions of the wreck, not directly held by the tractors, began to separate from the main mass. As each bit left its place, another beam leaped out, until it became apparent that no more were available, and Stephen strapped the girl and himself down before two lookout plates. "'Now for it, Nadia!' he exclaimed, and simultaneously threw on the power of his own projectors and sent out the radio impulse which closed the relays he had so carefully set. They were thrown against the restraining straps savagely, and held there, by an enormous weight, as the gigantic dirigible projector shot their fragment of the wreck away from the comparatively slight force which had been acting upon it. But they braced themselves and strained their muscles in order to watch what was happening. As the relays in the various fragments closed, The massed power of the accumulators was shorted dead across the converters and projectors, instead of being fed into them gradually through the controls of the pilot, with a result comparable to that of the explosion of an ammunition dump. Most of the masses, whose projectors were fed by comparatively few accumulator cells, darted away entirely with a stupendous acceleration. A few of them, however, received the unimpeded flow of complete batteries. Those projectors tore loose from even their massive supports, and crashed through anything opposing them like a huge, armor-piercing projectile. It was a spectacle to stagger the imagination, and Stevens grinned as he turned to the girl, who was staring in wide-eyed amazement. "'Well, Ace, I think they're busy enough now so that it'll be safe to take that long-wanted look at their controls.' and he flashed the twin beams of his lookout light beyond the upper half of the Arcturus, only to see them stop abruptly in mid-space. Even the extremely short carrier wave of rosers' rays could not go through the invisible barrier thrown out by the tiny but powerful globe of space. "'No penetration?' Nadia asked. "'Flatten them out cold. However, as the fox once remarked about the grapes,' I'll bet they're sour anyway. We'll have some stuff of our own, one of these days. I sure hope the fireworks we started back there keep those birds amused, until we get out of sight, because if I use much more power on these projectors, we may not have juice enough left to stop with. You're using enough now to suit me. I'm so heavy I can hardly lift a finger. You'd better lift them." You must watch what's going on back there while I navigate around this moon. All ex chief, they've got their hands full apparently. Those rays are shooting around all over the sky. It looks as though they were trying to capture four or five things at once with each one. Good. Tell me when the moon cuts them off. At the awful acceleration they were using, which constantly increased the terrific velocity with which they had been traveling when they made good their escape, it was not long until they had placed the satellite between them and the enemy. Then Stevens cut down and reversed his power. Such was their speed, however, that a long detour was necessary in order to reduce it to a safe landing rate. As soon as this could be done, Stevens headed for the morning zone and dropped the hope rapidly toward the surface of that new, strange world. Details could not be distinguished at first because of an all-enshrouding layer of cloud, but the rising sun dispelled the mist, and when they had descended to within a few thousand feet of the surface, their vision was unobstructed. Immediately below them the terrain was mountainous and heavily wooded while far to the east the rays of a small, pale sun glinted upon a vast body of water. No signs of habitation were visible as far as the eye could reach. Now to pick out a location for our power-plant. We must have a waterfall for power, a good place to hide our ship from observation, and I'd like to have a little seam of coal. We can use wood if we have to, but I think we can find some coal. This is all sedimentary rock. It looks a lot like the country along the North Fork of the Flathead in Montana. There are a lot of coal outcrops, usually, in such topography as this is. We want to hide in a hurry, though, don't we? Not particularly, I think. If they had missed us at all, they would have had us long ago, and with all the damage we did with those projectors, they won't be surprised at one piece being missing.' I imagine they lost a good many. But they'll know that somebody caused all that disturbance. Won't they hunt for us?" Maybe, and maybe not. No telling what they'll do. However, by the time they can land and get checked up and ready to hunt for us, we'll be a mighty small needle, well hidden in a good big haystack." For several hours they roamed over the mountainous region at high velocity seeking the best possible location. And finally they found one that was almost ideal. A narrow canyon overhung with heavy trees, opening into a wide, deep gorge upon a level with its floor. A mighty waterfall cascaded into the gorge just above the canyon, and here and there could be seen black outcrops which Stevens, after a close scrutiny, declared to be coal. He deftly guided their cumbersome wedge of steel into the retreat, allowed it to settle gently to the ground, and shut off the power. "'Well, little fellow-conspirator against the peace and dignity of the Jovians, I don't know just where we are, but wherever it is, we're here. We got away clean, and as long as we don't use any high-tension stuff or anything else that they can trace, I think we're as safe as money in a bank.' "'I suppose that I ought to be scared to death, Steve, but I'm not.' I'm just too thrilled for words," Nadia answered, and the eager sparkle in her eyes bore out her words. "'Can we go out now? How about air? Shall we wear suits or go out as we are? Have you got a weapon of any kind? Hurry up! Let's do something!' "'Pipe down, Ace. Remember that we don't know any more about anything around here than a pig does about Sunday, and conduct yourself accordingly. Take it easy. I'm surprised at the gravity here. This is certainly Ganymede, and it has a diameter of only about fifty-seven hundred kilometers. If I remember correctly, Damoiseau estimated its mass at about three one-hundredths that of Earth, which would make its surface gravity about one-sixth. However, it is actually almost a half, as you see by this spring-balance here. Therefore, it is quite a little more massive than has been—'What of it!' Let's go places and do things!' "'Calm yourself, Ginger. You've got lots of time. We'll be here for quite a while, I'm afraid. We can't go out until we analyze the air. We're sure lucky there's as much as there is. I'm not exactly the world's foremost chemist, but fortunately an air analysis isn't much of a job with the apparatus we carry.' While Nadia controlled her impatience as best she could, Stevens manipulated the bulbs and pipettes of the gas apparatus. Pressure, fifty-two centimeters, more than I dared hope for. And analysis, all X, I believe. Oxygen concentration, a little high, but not much. We won't have to wear the spacesuits then. Not unless I miss something in the analysis. The pressure corresponds to our own at a height of about three thousand meters, which we can get used to without too much trouble good thing, too. I brought along all the air I could get hold of, but as I told you back there, if we had to depend on it altogether, we might be out of luck. I'm going to pump some of our air back into a cylinder to equalize our pressure. Don't want to waste any of it until we're sure the outside air suits us without treatment." When the pressure inside had been gradually reduced to that outside, and they had become accustomed to breathing the rarefied medium, Stevens opened the airlock and the outside doors and for some time cautiously sniffed the atmosphere of the satellite. He could detect nothing harmful or unusual in it. It was apparently the same as earthly air, and he became jubilant. "'All ex Nadia! Luck is perched right on our banner. Freedom, air, water, power, and coal. Now, as you suggested, we'll go places and do things.' "'Suppose it's safe?' her first eagerness to explore their surroundings had abated noticeably. "'You aren't armed, are you?' "'No, and I don't believe there was a gun of any kind aboard the Arcturus. That kind of thing went out quite a while ago, you know. We'll take a look, anyway. We've got to find out more about the coal before we decide to settle down here. Remember this half-gravity stuff, and control your leg muscles accordingly.' Leaping lightly to the ground, they saw that the severed section of fifty-inch armor, which was the rim of their conveyance, almost blocked the entrance to the narrow canyon which they had selected for their retreat. Upon one side, that wall of steel actually touched the almost perpendicular wall, or rock. Upon the other side, there was left only a narrow passage. They stepped through it, so that they could see the waterfall and the gorge, and stopped silent. The sun, now fairly high— was in no sense the familiar orb of day, but was a pale, insipid thing, only one-fifth the diameter of the sun to which they were accustomed, and which could almost be studied with the unshielded eye. From their feet a grassy meadow a few hundred feet wide sloped gently down to the river, from whose farther bank a precipice sprang upward for perhaps a thousand feet, merging into towering hills whose rugged grandeur was reminiscent of the topography of the moon. At their backs, the wall of the gorge was steep, but not precipitous, and was covered with shrubs and trees, some of which leaned out over the little canyon, completely screening it, and among whose branches birds could now and then be seen flitting about. In that direction, no mountains were visible, indicating that upon their side of the river there was an upland plateau, or bench. To their right, the river, the gorge, and the strip of meadow extending for a mile or more then curved away and were lost to sight. To their left, almost too close for comfort, was the stupendous cataract, towering above them to a terror-inspiring height. Nadia studied it with awe, which changed to puzzled wonder. "'What's the matter with it, Steve? It looks like a picture in slow motion, like the kind they take of your dives. Or am I seeing things?' No, it's really slow, compared to what we're used to. Remember that one-half-gravity stuff? Oh, that's right. But it certainly does look funny. It gives me the creeps. You'll get used to it pretty quick, just as you'll get used to all the rest of the things having only half their earthly weight and falling only half as fast as they ought to when you drop them. Well, I don't see anything that looks dangerous yet. Let's go up toward the falls a few meters and prospect that outcrop." With a few brisk strokes of an improvised shovel, he cleared the outcrop of detritus, and broke off several samples of the black substance, with which they went back to the forlorn hope. "'It's real coal,' Stevens announced, after a series of tests. "'I've seen better, but on the other hand there's lots worse. It'll make good gas, and a kind of a coke. Not so hot, but it'll do. Now we'd better get organized, old partner, for a long campaign. Go ahead and organize. I'm only the cheap help in this enterprise. Cheap help? You're apt to be the life of the party. Can you make and shoot a bow and arrow? I'll say I can. I've belonged to an archery club for five years. What did I tell you? You're a lifesaver. Here's the dope.' We've got to save our own supplies as much as possible until we know exactly what we're up against, and to do that, we've got to live off the country. I'll fake up something to knock over some of those birds and small game. Then we can make real bowstrings and feathered arrows, and I'll forge some steel arrowheads while you're making yourself a real bow. We'd better make me about a hundred pound war bow, too. A hundred, interrupted Nadia. That's a lot of bow, big boy. Think you can bend it?" You'd be surprised," he grinned. I'm not quite like Robin Hood. I've been known to miss a finger-thick wand at a hundred paces. But I'm not exactly a beginner." Oh, of course! I should have known by your language that you're an archer. Otherwise, you'd never have used such an old-fashioned word as pounds. I shoot a thirty-five-pound bow ordinarily. But for game, I should have the heaviest one I can hold accurately. About a forty-five, probably. All X. And as soon as I can, I'll make us a couple of suits of fairly heavy steel armor, so that we'll have real protection if we should need it. You see, we don't know what we're apt to run up against out here. Then, with that much done, it'll be up to you to provide, since I'll have to work tooth and nail at the forges." You'll have to bring home the bacon, do the cooking, and so on, and see what you can find along the line of edible roots, grains, fruits, and what not. Sort of reverse the Indian idea. You be the hunter, and I'll keep the home fires burning. Can do?" "'What it takes to do that, I've got,' Noddy assured him, her eyes sparkling. "'Have you your job planned out as well and as fittingly as you have mine?' "'And then some.' We've got just two methods of getting away from here. One is to get in touch with Brandon, so that he'll come after us. The other is to recharge our accumulators and try to make it under our own power. Either course will need power, and lots of it. I never thought of going back in the hope. Suppose we could? About as doubtful as the radio. I think that I could build a pair of matched frequency auto-dirigible transmitter and receptor units such as are necessary for spaceships fed by stationary power-plants, but after I got them built, they'd take us less than halfway there. Then we'd have only what power we can carry, and I hate even to think of what probably would happen to us. We'd certainly have to drift for months before we could get close enough to any of our plants to radio for help, and we'd be taking awful chances. You see, we'd have to take a very peculiar orbit.' and if we should miss connections passing the inner planets, what the sun would do to us at the closest point, and where what's left of us would go on the backswing, would be just too bad. Besides, if we can get hold of the Sirius, they'll come loaded for bear, and we may be able to do something about the rest of the folks out there." "'Oh,' breathed the girl, "'wouldn't it be wonderful if we could? I thought, of course, they'd all be—' Her voice died away. Not necessarily. There's always a chance. That's why I'm trying the ultra-radio first. However, either course will take lots of power, so the first thing I've got to do is build a power plant. I'm going to run a penstock up those falls and put in a turbine, driving a high-tension alternator. Then, while I'm trying to build the ultra-radio, I'll be charging our accumulators, so that no time will be lost in case the radio fails." If it does fail, and remember, I'm not counting on its working, of course I'll tackle the transmission and receptor units before we start out to drift it. You say it easy, Steve, but how can you build all those things with nothing to work with? It's going to be a real job. I'm not trying to kid you into thinking it'll be either easy or quick. Here's the way everything will go. Before I can even lay the first length of the penstock, I've got to have the pipe. To make which, I've got to have flat steel. To get which, I'll have to cut some of the partitions out of this ship of ours. To do which, I'll have to have a cutting-torch. To make which, I'll have to forge nozzles out of block-metal, and to run which, I'll have to have gas. To get which, I'll have to have mine-coal, and build a gas-plant. To do which—' Good heavens, Steve! Are you going back to the Stone Age?' I never thought of half those things. Why, it's impossible!" Not quite, Guy. Things could be a lot worse. That's why I brought along the whole forlorn hope, instead of just the lifeboat. As it is, we've got several thousand tons of spare steel and lots of copper. We've got ordinary tools and a few light motors, blowers and such stuff. That gives me a great big start. I won't have to mine the oars and smelt the metals as would've been necessary otherwise. However, it'll be plenty bad. I'll have to start out in a pretty crude fashion. And for some of the stuff I'll need, I'll have to make, not only the machine that makes the part I want, but also the machine that makes the machine that makes the machine that makes it, and so on, just how far down the line, I haven't dared to think. You must be a regular jack-of-all-trades, to think you can get away with such a program as that." I am. Nothing else but. You see, while most of my school training was in advanced physics and mathematics, I worked my way through by computing and designing, and I've done a lot of truck-horse labor of various kinds besides. I can calculate and design almost anything, and I can make a pretty good stab at translating a design into fabricated material. I wouldn't wonder if Brandon's ultra-radio would stop me, since nobody had even started to build one when I saw him last. But I helped compute it, know the forces involved as well as he did at that time, and it so happens that I know more about the design of coils and fields of force than I do about anything else. So I may be able to work it out eventually. It isn't going to be not knowing how that will hold me up, it'll be the lack of something that I can't build. And that's where you will go back and back and back, as you said about building the penstock. Back and back is right, if I can find all the necessary raw materials. That's what's probably going to put a lot of monkey wrenches into the machinery. And Stevens went to work upon a weapon of offense, fashioning a crude but powerful bow from a strip of spring steel strung with heavy wire. How about arrows? Shall I go and see if I can hit a bird with a rock for feathers, and see if I can find something to make arrows out of?" Not yet. Anyway, I'd bet on the birds. I'm going to use pieces of this light brace-rod off the accumulator cells for arrows. They won't fly true, of course, but with their mass I can give them enough projectile force to kill any small animal they hit, no matter how they hit it." After many misses, he finally bagged a small animal Something like a rabbit and something like a kangaroo, and a couple of round bodied, plump birds, almost as large as domestic hens. These they dressed with considerable distaste and a noticeable lack of skill. We'll get used to it pretty quick, Diana, also more expert, he said when the task was done. We now have raw material for bowstrings and clothes, as well as food the word raw being heavily accented," Nadia declared, with a grimace. "'But how do we know that they're good to eat?' "'We'll have to eat them and see,' he grinned. "'I don't imagine that any flesh is really poisonous, and we'll have to arrive at the ones we like best by a process of trial and error. Well, here's your job. I'll get busy on mine. Don't go more than a few hundred meters away and yell if you get into a jam.' There's a couple of questions I want to ask you. What makes it so warm here, when the sun's so far away, and Jupiter isn't supposed to be radiating any heat? And how about time? It's twelve hours by my watch since sunrise this morning, and it's still shining." As for heat, I've been wondering about that. It must be due to internal heat, because, even though Jupiter may be warm, or even hot, it certainly isn't radiating much since it has a temperature of minus two hundred at the visible surface, which, of course, is the top of the atmosphere. Our heat here is probably caused by radioactivity. That's the most modern dope, I believe. As for time, it looks as though our days were something better than thirty hours long, instead of twenty-four. Of course, I'll keep the chronometer going on I.P. time, since we'll probably need it in working out observations.' But we might as well let our watches run down and work, eat, and sleep by the sun. Not much sense in trying to keep Tellurian time here, as I see it. Check." All X. I'll have supper ready for you at sunset. Bye." A few evenings later, when Stevens came in after his long day's work, he was surprised to see Nadia dressed in a suit of brown coveralls and high-laced moccasins. "'How do I look?' she asked, pirouetting gaily. Neat, but not gaudy, he approved. That's good moleskin. Smooth, soft, and tough. Where'd you make the rays? I didn't know we had anything like that on board. What did you do for thread? You look like a million dollars. You sure did a good job of fitting. I had to have something, what with all the thorns and brush, there was almost more of me exposed than covered. And I was getting scratched up something fierce. So I ripped up one of the space-suits, and found out that there's enough cloth, fur, and leather in one of them to make six ordinary suits, and thread by the kilometer. I was awfully glad to see all that thread. I had an idea that I'd have to unravel my stockings or something, but I didn't. Your clothes are getting pretty tacky, too, and you're getting all burned with those hot coals and things. I'm going to build you a suit out of leather, for your blacksmithing activities." fine business, Ace. Then we can save what's left of our civilized clothes for the return trip. What do we eat? THE ETERNAL QUESTION OF THE HUNGRY LABORING MAN. I've got roasted bongo, a fried philamalu bird, and a boiled warple for the meat dishes. For vegetables, mashed hycoderms and pimola greens. Neocorn bread. TRANSLATE THAT, PLEASE, INTO TERMS OF FOOD translate it yourself after you eat it. I changed the system on you today. I've named all the things, so it'll be easier to keep track of those we like and the ones we don't." With appetites sharp set by long hours of hard labor, they ate heartily. Then, in the deepening twilight, they sat and talked in comradely fashion while Stephen smoked one precious cigarette. It was not long until Nadia had her work well in hand. Game was plentiful, and the fertile valley and the neighboring upland yielded peculiar but savory vegetable foods in variety and abundance. So that soon she was able to spend some time with Stevens, helping him as much as she could. Thus she came to realize the true magnitude of the task he faced, and the real seriousness of their position. As Stevens had admitted before the work was started, he had known that he had set himself a gigantic task but he had not permitted himself to follow, step by step, the difficulties that he knew awaited him. Now, as the days stretched into weeks and on into months, he was forced to take every laborious step, and it was borne in upon him just how nearly impossible that Herculean labor was to prove, just how dependent any given earthly activity is upon a vast number of others. Here he was alone. Everything he needed must be manufactured by his own hands, from its original sources. He had known that progress would be slow, and he had prepared for that, but he had not pictured, even to himself, half of the maddening setbacks which occurred time after time because of the crudity of the tools and equipment he was forced to use. All too often, a machine or part, the product of many hours of grueling labor, would fail, because of the lack of some insignificant thing, some item so common as to be taken for granted in all terrestrial shops, but impossible of fabrication with the means at his disposal. At such times he would set his grim jaw a trifle harder, go back one step farther toward the Stone Age, and begin all over again, to find the necessary raw material or a possible substitute and then to build the apparatus and machinery necessary to produce the part he required. Thus the heart-breaking task progressed, and Nadia watched her co-laborer become leaner and harder, and more desperate day by day, unable in any way to lighten his fearful load. In the brief period of rest following a noonday meal, Stevens lay prone upon the warm, fragrant grass beside the forlorn hope, and it was evident to Nadia that he was not resting. His burned and blistered hands were locked savagely behind his head. His eyes were closed too tightly, and every tense line of his body was eloquent of a strain even more mental than physical. She studied him for minutes, her fine eyes clouded, then sat down beside him and put her hand upon his shoulder. "'I want to talk to you a minute, Steve,' she said gently. "'All X, little fellow. But it might be just as well if you didn't touch me. You see, I'm getting so rabid that I can't trust myself. That's exactly what I want to talk to you about.' A fiery blush burned through her deep tan, but her low, clear voice did not falter, and her eyes held his unflinchingly. "'I know you better than you know yourself, as I've said before. You are killing yourself—' But it isn't the work, frightfully hard and disheartening as it is, that is doing it. It's your anxiety for me, and the uncertainty of everything. You haven't been able to rest because you have been raging and fuming so at unavoidable conditions. You have been fighting facts. And it's all so useless, Steve. Between you and me, everything would check out on zero if we just come out into the open." The man's gaunt frame seemed to stiffen even more rigidly. "'You've said altogether too much, or else only half enough, Nadia. You know, of course, that I've loved you ever since I got really to know you, and that didn't take long. You know that I love you, and you know how I love you, with the real love that a man can feel for only one woman and only once in his life. And you know exactly what we're up against.' Now that does tear it. Wide open. He finished bitterly. No, it doesn't, at all, she replied steadily. Of course, I know that you love me. And I glory in it. And since you don't seem to realize that I love you in exactly the same way, I'll tell you so. Love you! Good heaven, Steve, I never dreamed that such a man as you really existed— but you're fighting too many things at once, and they're killing you, and they're mostly imaginary at that. Can't you see that there's no need of uncertainty between you and me? That there is no need of you driving yourself to desperation on my account? Whatever must be is all x with me, Steve. If you can build everything you need, all well and good. We'll be engaged until then, and our love will be open and sweet. If worst comes to worst, so that we can neither communicate with Brandon and Westfall, nor leave here under our own power. Even that is nothing to kill ourselves about. And yes, I do know exactly what we're facing. I have been prepared for it ever since I first saw what a perfectly impossible thing you are attempting. You are trying to go from almost the Age of Bronze clear up to year after next in a month or two. "'Not one man in a million could have done as much in his lifetime as you have done in the last few weeks, and I do not see how even you, with what little you have to work with, can possibly build such things as power-plants, transmitters, and ultra-radio stations. "'But what of it? For the day that it becomes clear that we are to remain here indefinitely, that day we will marry each other here, before God. Look around at this beautiful country.' Could there be a finer world upon which to found a new race? When we have decided to cut loose from the Arcturus, I told you that I was with you all the way, and now I'll repeat it, with a lot more meaning. No matter what it's like, Steve, no matter where it leads to, I'm with you, to the end of the road. Here, or upon Earth, or anywhere in the universe, I am yours for life and for eternity." While she was speaking, the grim, strained lines upon Stephen's face had disappeared, and as she fell silent, he straightened up, and gently, tenderly, reverently, he took her lithe body into his arms. "'You're right, sweetheart. Everything will check out on zero, to nineteen decimals.' He was a man transfigured. "'I've been fighting windmills, and I've been scared sick.' But how was I to think that a wonder-girl like you could ever love a mutt like me? You certainly are the gamest little partner a man ever had. You're the world's straightest shooter, Ace. You're a square brick if there ever was one. Your sheer nerve in being willing to go the whole route makes me love you more than ever, if such a thing can be possible, and it certainly puts a new face on the whole cockeyed universe for me. However, I don't believe it will come to that. After what you've just said, I sure will lick that job, regardless of how many different factories it takes to make one armature. I'll show that mess of scrap-iron what kind of trees make shingles." The girl still in his arms, he rose to his feet and released her slowly, reluctantly, unwilling ever to let her go. Then he shook himself, as though an overwhelming burden had been lifted from his shoulders, and laughed happily. "'See this cigarette?' he went on lightly. "'The last of the Mohicans. I'm going to smoke it, in honor of our engagement.' He drew the fragrant smoke deep into his lungs, and frowned at her in mock seriousness. "'This would be a nice world to live on, of course, but the jobs here are too darn steady.' it also seems to be somewhat lacking in modern conveniences, such as steel mills and machine tools. Then, too, it is just a trifle too far from the royal and ancient for you really to enjoy living here permanently. And besides, I can't get my favorite brand of cigarettes around here. Therefore, after due deliberation, I don't believe we'll take the place. We'll go back to tell us." Kiss me just once more, Ace, and I'll make that job think a cyclone has struck it right on the center of impact. Like Samuel Weller, or whoever it was, I'm clear full of wigger, whim, and vitality." The specified kiss, and several others duly delivered, he strode blithely away, and the little canyon resounded with the blows of his heavy sledge as he attacked with renewed spirit the great forging white-hot from his soak-pit, which was to become the shaft of his turbo-alternator. Nadia watched him for a moment, her very heart in her eyes, then picked up her spanner and went after more steel, breathing a long and tremulous but supremely happy sigh. End of chapter 3